The fight to legalize abortion 50 years ago was political and personal. I found out that my mother had actually drafted, like literally written out the proposed language for a bill that would have completely decriminalized abortion in the state of New York, just completely taken it out of the legal code so that it would just be a free choice for all people, you know, in cons consultation with their families and their doctors and so on. And my mother's draft law didn't wind up getting passed. It was actually amended down from that point. But the, what did wind up being passed was the most radical change in the abortion law anywhere in the United States before Roe versus Wade. That's historian Felicia Cornblue. We talk with her about her book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Then we re-air a clip from our conversation with Dolan Perkins Valdez about the famous reproductive justice case that inspired her novel, Take My Hand. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. This week's episode comes out on March 8th, International Women's Day. It's the first International Women's Day since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That relegated women instantly to the status of second-class citizens without control over their reproductive choices. Choice still exists in those states that protect it. But for how long? A decision could come soon, banning access to abortion medication throughout the land. But the fight goes on. Just yesterday, on March 7th, five women sued the state of Texas after being denied medically necessary abortions, asserting the state's draconian abortion ban threatens the lives and health of pregnant people. This week's episode centers on the fight for reproductive choice. Our first guest is Felicia Cornblue. Her book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, chronicles the spellbinding story of how the first law legalizing abortion in the U.S. was passed in New York in 1970. But it also tells a second parallel story, the fight against involuntary sterilization. Both stories touched Felicia personally. Her mother was prominent in the fight for abortion rights, her neighbor, Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias, who lived across the hall in her childhood home in a New York apartment building, was instrumental in the fight against involuntary sterilization of poor women of color. Felicia Cornblue is professor of history and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Vermont. She's the author of two previous books, The Battle for Welfare Rights and Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. And she served as a board member for Planned Parenthood. Felicia Cornblue, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. A Woman's Life is a Human Life. This was just a fascinating story. The, the subtitle is My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. 
You know, the women's liberation movement coined the phrase, the personal is political. And in fact, that term came out of the fight for abortion rights in New York State. For you, this book is both personal and political. Tell us about the personal connection you have with that abortion rights fight through your mother, a story that you only discovered just moments after she had passed away. Yeah, that's the the beautiful and the incredibly sad thing about um, this book and about writing it has been that it started with my mother's stroke, a stroke that wound up being fatal for her. Um, in the first few minutes of my nephew's bar mitzvah, my mother, who was so happy <laughs> to be there for my nephew's bar mitzvah, um, had this cataclysmic medical event and... It was only after that that my sister and my father started talking about the role that my mother played in legalizing abortion in New York State. And even though I'm a women's historian, I am sometimes a legal historian, and I teach this material all the time, I had never known that story. And I didn't know the role that she played. And I, I didn't really know what happened in New York, which which proved, once I really um, unearthed the story, proved to be an absolutely critical building block on the road to Roe versus Wade. And I just didn't know it. It wasn't in the literature. It wasn't something that people had talked about. And I found out after doing a lot of spade work and benefiting from the generosity of a lot of librarians and people who held personal papers from this period, I found out that my mother had actually drafted, like literally written out the proposed language for a bill that would have completely decriminalized abortion in the state of New York, just completely taken it out of the legal code so that it would just be a free choice for all people, you know, in cons consultation with their families and their doctors and so on. And my mother's draft law didn't wind up getting passed. It was actually amended down from that point. But the, what did wind up being passed was the most radical change in the abortion law anywhere in the United States before Roe versus Wade. And that was, that was her work as a volunteer. She was a lawyer, but she was a volunteer and a member of the National Organization for Women who, who kind of did this drafting work on the side and then gave her draft to two state legislators who then introduced the bill. Yeah, she really started the ball rolling. And what a fascinating story it is. Um, you know, you, as you mentioned, you're a historian, you teach and write about women and gender law and movements for social change. I mean, you just seem to be the perfect person to write this book, because it's a detailed explanation of how New York passed the first law, legalizing abortion. But it's, it's also about so much more. It really elevates how important the movements for reproductive rights and reproductive justice were in the passage of the New York law. Now, these are two different movements that worked together, but also had major disagreements and differences. Talk about the difference between the movement for reproductive rights and the movement for reproductive justice. Yeah, so this is the other dimension of the story, and I, I have a very powerful personal connection to this as well. Um, at some point, while I was digging through the, the archives to figure out what happened in New York and what role my mother played, I, I just remembered that 
the, the woman who had been our next door neighbor for most of the 1980s was also a reproductive rights or as we would now say reproductive justice advocate. So she was a woman named Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, uh, a Puerto Rican physician who was a leader in public health and in hospital administration in New York. And she was one of the founders of the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, or CESA, which was a group that got off the ground after Roe versus Wade. So Helen, our neighbor, she, she was involved in the, the movement to legalize abortion, and she was very committed to abortion rights. But then what you see is after New York changed its law, and then even more after Roe versus Wade came down from the Supreme Court in 1973, there really was a divergence in the movement. So people like my mom, who were so focused on, on abortion and birth control, and that side of reproductive rights demands, continued to support those things. But then people like Helen and some of her allies who were coming from communities of color, coming from places like Puerto Rico, you know, who were more attuned to some of the things that were going wrong in America for working class women and single women and poor women. Um, they started to fight against sterilization abuse and to try and institute certain controls so that doctors and social workers wouldn't be pressuring people to have sterilization surgeries when they really didn't want them. And from my perspective and from their perspective, that also was a vital fight for reproductive rights. It was a fight that, that came about. There was um, a very important legal case in, of two sisters. Now, I, I actually did do a, a show about a novel that was written um, based on that case. I, I don't remember the name again. The Ralph Sisters, sure. Yeah, that, that was really important. I mean, there were all kinds of, um, and that was also happening in the 1960s. Isn't that right? Well, what was really interesting was that the scandal over what happened to these two little girls in Alabama, the Ralph sisters, that scandal emerged right after Roe versus Wade. So you see right away after, after reproductive rights are mostly secured for many or most um, American women in 1973 with Roe, what the, the case of the Ralph sisters and this whole concern about sterilization abuse reveals is that there are other reproductive issues that matter to poor women and black women and, um, and Latinas um, beyond, beyond abortion. So legal abortion is, is absolutely essential, but it's not enough. And that's their key insight, right? And so it starts right there in 73 after Roe versus Wade, and then the work of Helen Rodriguez Trias and many others through the 70s into the 80s and beyond then becomes by the early part of the 21st century and up to today, what we today call the demand for reproductive justice, which is, yes, of course, legal abortion, safe, legal, accessible, affordable abortion care. And yes, of course, contraception, but also all the things that people will need to be able to have children when they want to have children and when they, they think that's an appropriate choice for them. And so controlling sterilization ab abuse is, is just the, the very minimal starting point for what you could provide to people to enable them to have kids, as well as enabling them to not have kids when that's their choice. And that's really what it means to have real choice. Um, this is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. I'm speaking with Felicia Cornblue about her book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, 
and the journey from reproductive rights to reproductive justice. Now, you point to the conflicts that were really, you know, I think you identified pretty clearly were, were based in class classism and even racism in the liberal feminist movement, um, you know, conflicts with the anti-sterilization movement, you really root them in, in, in some of the class and race differences. So I wonder if you could talk about that, because that was already going on even before Roe versus Wade passed. Yeah, it was hard for me as, as a writer and as a daughter, I guess, you know, somebody whose starting point for the book was really with my mother and with this kind of sense of loss and mourning for her and intimacy, I had to be willing in the book to, to have, to have that, to have my closeness to my mother and my great love and respect for her. And at the same time, to be able to see her as a person who was defined by her situation, by some of her, some of the key characteristics. She was white, she was middle-class, she was a professional, and she had a kind of a limited worldview. And so did a lot of the other white middle-class feminists. Um, my mom was also straight and she was married and, you know, all of those things shaped her view. And she and some of the other women that she worked with in the National Organization for Women and in NARAL and in Planned Parenthood and the, the really mainstream feminist and reproductive rights organizations, they, they didn't understand this demand for for controlling sterilization abuse as a reproductive rights demand. They didn't get it. Um, and even worse, I would say, they opposed some of those initiatives. Um, and I think their view was, if you, if you make it more difficult for people to access sterilization, right? If you, if you try and put some controls over what doctors can say or how doctors might be able to coerce people or influence people, that that in itself could wind up being um, a block to people exercising their reproductive rights. And it might be sort of a slippery slope, you know, from those kinds of controls to controls on people's access to abortion. So they really saw it as separate, first of all, as sort of not their business. And then secondly, they even opposed it because they thought that there was a threat there. And there, there emerged this very profound conflict in the movement that I think even today we haven't really dealt with and groups like Planned Parenthood have not really addressed. And yet, you know, it seems to me this is a conflict that is easily resolved if you go back to really what your title says, a woman's life is a human life. That is that women are people, the whole concept of women as personhood and therefore capable of choice over her reproductive decisions. You know, that, that's an easy way to solve that what seems to be, you know, what seems to be a conflict. Why didn't that happen? And how did that actually weaken the movement for abortion rights? Well, especially after Roe versus Wade, there was this big gap in the movement. And the way we usually tell the story is, I think, not quite right. Like there's there's a I, I think there's a kind of popular understanding and even in in history books to some degree, that after Roe versus Wade, what happened was that everybody went home and sort of assumed that the issue was handled. And I don't quite see that. I mean, there, there may have been some people who had that response, but what I see more is that after Roe versus Wade, new issues arose and new movements arose. And 
right? And there, and and then there were some of these conflicts around issues of race and and class, and around around questions like, what do you think about your doctor? First of all, do you have a doctor? Do you have a private doctor? And secondly, what do you think about the medical profession? And do you, generally speaking, think that you're going to get good advice from your doctor, or do you think that we need some kind of government policy so that your doctor isn't going to coerce you into having a surgery that you don't want to have, or you know, just give you the surgery um, when you happen to be in for something else? Like that happened. People people had their uh, had hysterectomies, had their wombs removed um, when they went to the hospital for some other procedure, and they would wake up sterilized, right? Um, so some people were mistrustful and some people were trustful. And that that had everything to do with people's uh, class and race location. So I, what I see in the 70s are kind of bitterer fights um, around these questions. And um, the anti-sterilization movement, despite all of that, were they were very successful. They won a big policy change first in the New York City public hospitals, which is a huge system, right? Even then, and it's even huger today. Then... They won uh, a new law in New York City, the New York City Council. And then most profoundly, they got the Federal Department of Health, Education and Welfare, which today is HHS, to issue a new rule that covered every health facility in the United States that took money from the federal government, which is basically all health facilities. Yes, I mean, that came out of the, the case, I believe, of the Ralph sisters. You know, this really, it did, however, come to the fore, uh, the right to choose whether or not to give birth uh, came together in a 1963 case of Karen Stam, which was really important for the movement. Tell us a little bit about that case. Well, Karen is one of the key people who helped me write the book. Um, she was an activist with the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse in the 70s. She, she worked with this woman who was my neighbor. She worked with Helen Rodriguez Trias. And the story that she tells about how she got into activism had to do with her being in 1963, a young woman who was seeking an abortion. And even though it was, you know, well before Roe versus Wade, a decade before Roe versus Wade, and seven years before even New York would change its law, there were some exceptions. And it was possible to get a safe and legal abortion if you met certain criteria. And if your doctor set you up for it if your doctor thought that you were deserving of it. So what happened to Karen Stam is that, you know, as a young white woman from a middle-class background, the doctor was sympathetic to her and did sign all the paperwork saying that she could have a legal abortion procedure. However, when she signed the consent form for the abortion, she was given another consent form on the opposite side of the page which was a consent form for sterilization. And, and she was pressured by the doctors at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx to sign the other side of the page. And I think the logic was, the idea was, since she was promiscuous, as they would have put it, she was somebody who was having sex outside of wedlock, and that's how she had gotten pregnant, um, that, that it was just going to happen again, and that she was sort of a bad candidate for motherhood. And so that even though she was very young, they wanted her to agree to be permanently sterilized. And she refused to do it. And the way she describes it is that was the moment when she knew that ultimately she had to be an activist in this area. 
And it's an incredible story. Felicia Cornblue, in this book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, it's a fascinating tale of how progressive Democrats, clergy, and liberal and radical feminists joined together in the movement. Talk about these different aspects of the movement. Well, it really was a group effort. And that's one of the things I love about this story is that in the period when they were working on decriminalizing abortion, uh, ultimately leading up to Roe versus Wade, people were really focused on that goal. So, so there were people from all over the, the movement, um, not just feminists, but they managed to work together and to, to not censor their differences or silence their differences, but to kind of put their differences aside, understanding that they were working toward a common goal. So for example, my mother was a member of the National Organization for Women, which is sort of the most mainstream of the feminist organizations. Although at the time that it started, it was it itself was kind of a, a big tent. Um, and there were lots of different people within that organization. But they worked very closely with, for example, Protestant and Jewish clergy who were active in the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which ran the, the largest nationwide referral network that helped people find safe abortions, much, much bigger than, for example, the network Jane in Chicago, right? This was a national effort that helped thousands of people find uh, safe abortions. Um, they also worked with so-called radical feminists, women's liberationists, who were much more confrontational and in your face and, you know, were learning from the movement against the war in Vietnam. Like, my mother wasn't gonna be in your face. She wasn't gonna be confrontational. But she was working with those folks because they all wanted the same thing, you know, and there were black and Puerto Rican radicals who were also very committed to this issue and also worked toward this same goal, even though their politics were really different from the women's liberation politics or from my mom's politics. So um, I think it took everyone and it took it took kind of everything they had to give. They didn't leave anything on the field. And they didn't let their differences stand in the way of reaching that common goal. I think there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. You know, I was very surprised uh, to hear that Betty Friedan was a lot more radical than most of us, including myself. Uh, I read The Feminine Mystique at the time when it came out than we knew. Um, so she was more of a radical. And then there was Flo Kennedy, who was also a co-founder of NOW. Um, Betty Friedan was a co-founder of NOW. And she was part of the Black Power Movement. So tell us a bit about Flo Kennedy. Flo Kennedy was an amazing woman. She was trained as an attorney, one of the very, very few Black female attorneys in her period. She, she went to law school even earlier than my mom did, um, I think in the late 40s. And she did join the National Organization for Women in New York when it started, uh, even though at the time, even at the time, she she had another side to her political life, which was, as you were saying, that she was very committed to the Black Power movement and was traveling in Black radical circles. So her effort early on was to bring this new women's movement, what was then a new women's movement, a movement for women's civil rights, into dialogue with the movement for Black civil rights and for Black power. And in the middle 1960s, when, when the National Organization for Women got going, um, that didn't seem like a crazy idea. <laughs> it seemed like it might really happen. 
And then what Kennedy did, Kennedy ultimately left now because she found it, quote, boring and scared. But she stayed in the movement, sort of um, widely considered the feminist movement. And she also used her skills as an attorney and was part of the legal team that brought the very first federal abortion case that centered on women. All the other cases had been in the name of doctors or sometimes in the name of clergy who had referred people for abortions. But this was the very first time that there was a case brought for women and that was claiming that abortion was a question of women's civil rights. So Kennedy was an integral part of that. And she kept going to street demonstrations and she kept doing openly political and confrontational things, but she also was doing this work to change the law. Uh, that case, I believe that's Abramowitz versus Lefkowitz, is that right? Yeah, that's the case. 1969, so she and uh, members of Red Stockings, who, who were a radical feminist group, were involved in that, you know, she was bringing the case, they were involved in getting testimony. There was an incredible scene at a church in Greenwich Village where they started to take testimony. And this all revolves around the issue that women are the experts about their own body, which is something that the establishment legislators, the judicial system seemed to be completely ignorant of at the time. Yeah, it's so interesting studying this story because on the one hand, I can I can look and I can see, well, there were people, there were sort of moderates in the legal profession and legislators who wanted to make some changes in the abortion laws. But there really is a profound change that happens when feminist activists get involved at the very end of the 1960s. It's like uh, they turn on a switch and they change the they change the argument and the demand. And one of the central things that they do is they say insistently that women are the experts. We don't need to hear from clergy. We don't need to hear from lawyers. We don't need to hear from legislators or scientists or doctors, right? That we are the experts on our own bodies and our own experiences. And that might sound trite today, but at the time it was a revolution and it changed the politics and the conversation around abortion in a very, very profound way. Um, it came out of, and then I think it also helped spur a lot of the activism. There was there was a speak out that was organized by this women's liberation group, Red Stockings in lower Manhattan. The first ever speak out on any issue was a speak out on abortion that was designed to change the New York abortion law. And then there was this federal case of Bromwitz versus Lefkowitz with a five woman feminist legal team and over a hundred women plaintiffs and they use the same strategy, just bringing together a huge mass of women and letting them tell their own stories and saying, on the basis of what we know, not on the basis of what some doctor knows, but on the basis of what we know, this law must fall. Mm. And this really changed uh, the abortion rights fight. Now, I was also really involved in that. And talk about how the movement shifted from the uh, notion of the liberalization of abortion laws to advocating for outright repeal. And, and as you pointed out, your, your mother, Beatrice, was the person who first, you know, imagined that as a law. That was the critical switch. So women establishing themselves as experts, but then the, the legal outgrowth of that was a demand for full repeal 
And that was a dramatic change. And so my mother was the one, the first one who ever put that feminist demand for repeal into something like legislative language. And these two legislators in New York, um, one a Democrat and one a, a pro-choice Republican, introduced legislation in January 1969 that reflected that demand for full repeal. But by the time that happened, that was the demand of all feminists, basically all feminists. So in the National Organization for Women and even people who were much more radical than the National Organization for Women, that was the political demand, full repeal. And what that meant was that there wouldn't be any gatekeepers, right? There wouldn't be any criteria that somebody had to follow in order to seek this procedure. And, and what, they, what they would say is, why do you need any criteria? Why do you, do you need any gatekeepers? You don't need those things when you get a tonsillectomy, right? Or an appendectomy. You need an appendectomy, then you go get one, right? So that was their, that was their claim and it was a profound change. And it, it also was a rallying point for people all over the country. That was inspiring to the feminist mass movement, the demand for appeal in a way that other efforts to kind of liberalize or moderate the abortion laws really didn't inspire people. Felicia Cornblue talking about how New York's groundbreaking 1970 law legalizing abortion came to pass. There's more of our conversation right after the break. Don't go away. abortion song by the New Haven Women's Liberation Rock Band. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. 
I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with historian Felicia Cornblue about the fascinating story of how New York's groundbreaking 1970 law legalizing abortion came to pass. Her book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Just before the break, we started talking about the titanic legislative battle that ended with victory for the movement to legalize abortion in New York. Let's pick up the thread. And that legislative fight was a real cliffhanger. And your description of it is a real page turner. Uh, We don't have time to go into all the convoluted twists and turns, but give us some of the highlights of that legislative fight. Well, I can give you the end piece of the legislative fight, which is it's sort of it's sort of amazing. So, so um, well, I'll back up a little bit. The the law that my that my mother drafted was introduced in 1969 by by these two legislators. Um, it didn't go anywhere, right? They were the only two sponsors of the law for over a year, and instead, people kept introducing these very very moderate kind of lukewarm efforts to liberalize the abortion laws without really dramatically changing them. But um, things started to shift right at the start of 1970. And there and there was momentum building behind the law. And ultimately what happened was that it, was, it passed the state Senate in New York and then it came over to the state assembly, the equivalent of the state house of representatives. And the body was almost completely divided, almost completely evenly divided. And it looked in the final instance like it was going to lose. And then there was one legislator, one representative from upstate New York, who personally believed in abortion rights, but who was terrified that he was going to lose his seat. And he changed his vote in the last moment. And what he said was that he didn't think he could go home and spend the Passover holiday with his Jewish family if he was the one who defeated this law. Um, he didn't think he could particularly could look his daughter-in-law in the face if he did that. And so he did change his vote and he did lose his seat. He was voted out in the in a Democratic primary. It wasn't even in the general election by a, by a Republican. He was defeated in a Democratic primary by a Catholic Democrat. So that's what the politics were like in those days. Exactly. And unfortunately, we're heading back to them. Now, the law was actually not really outright repeal. What were the compromises? And what influence did those compromises have on what happened with Roe versus Wade and the eventual weakening of the abortion rights movement that's led to the Supreme Court decision uh, to repeal Roe versus Wade? Can you make those connections, actually? sure that um that those weaknesses led to the repeal um but i will say that uh, my mother's original draft was weakened it was amended down in the in the legislative process in a way that seemed necessary to the legislative architects at the time but that did have an impact on what happened going forward so originally the idea was to just take abortion entirely out of the legal code right, and certainly to remove it from the criminal code. And that was the key thing that didn't happen. So abortion in New York until 2019 remained in the, in the criminal code. However, 
what made New York so exceptional was that the law allowed people to make a completely free and unencumbered choice during the first six months of a pregnancy. So roughly through the first trimester and the second trimester. They didn't use that language. That's the language of Roe versus Wade. But it was roughly that that six month or two trimester period. And I think that is part of what Justice Blackman, who wrote the majority opinion in Roe versus Wade, kind of picked up. Um, they also they also had no requirements on uh, on residency. So in New York, you did not have to be a New York State resident in order to have a safe and legal abortion procedure in New York. And what happened after New York changed its law was that people came from every part of the United States and even from some other countries in order to have safe and legal abortions. And I think what happened there was that they showed that abortion could be provided in a safe and legal way. And, and that influenced the Supreme Court. And they also showed that when it was only in one state, you had this incredible inequality. And, and that inequality has become very familiar to us today, but I think in the 70s, it was more troubling to the folks who sat on the Supreme Court bench that the idea that in one state, you could have this mostly unencumbered and safe kind of procedure. Whereas if you lived too far away to get to New York or you were too poor or you had too many other childcare responsibilities or other responsibilities, you couldn't get there then you would either have to bear the child that you didn't want to bear, or you might have an unsafe abortion procedure that could even kill you. So I think the justices in the Supreme Court were very troubled by that. And all of that helps um, create the momentum for Roe. I will also say though, like on the other side, right? It is true, the New York law was not perfect. It took until 2019 for New York to somewhat update its law. It's still, even today, the New York law is not as liberal or encompassing as the one that my mom drafted in 1968. So that tells you something. Um, and there were people, even at the time, some radical feminists who warned that accepting any compromises could lead to inequality and could lead to divisions within the women's movement that would be harmful to the women women's movement. So, so in that sense, I think you know, there is some truth to the idea that the compromises they accepted, you know, create, created downstream troubles for the movement and for the law of abortion that we're seeing in the current time. I mean, it makes sense if you completely decriminalize something by taking it out of the legal system and establishing it as a constitutional right for choice, not necessarily privacy, but choice, they would have been in a lot stronger position. Yeah, I do sometimes think that there's a lot to be said for simplicity and a simple, complete decriminalization of abortion would have been really simple. And if the Supreme Court had really stuck to its guns and just said, yeah, this is a constitutional right. It's a privacy right at any time in a pregnancy for any reason, under any circumstances, we're gonna establish it as a regular medical procedure that's gonna be provided in mainstream medical institutions and everybody's gonna be trained in how to do it when they go to med school. That might've made a difference. I'm not sure that it would have. It was, it was controversial even then, and there was a backlash and there was a rising right to life movement and so on. So maybe that's you know too much Monday morning quarterbacking.
but there's a chance, you know? That's true. So in the time we have left, let's let's turn to the battle for uh, reproductive justice. You, you've spoken a bit a- about this, but I'd like to focus in on uh, Dr. Helen Rodriguez Arias's work um, when she was at Lincoln Hospital and the whole community control movement around Lincoln Hospital, the Young Lords, which was uh, like the Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panthers, got very involved in this issue of community control. Just talk about the social movement that led to uh, Dr. Uh, Rodriguez Arias's work. Yeah, so... If, if the New York decriminalization of abortion story is unfamiliar, this is a story that I think nobody knows. Particularly, there's a dimension of it which has to do with Puerto Rican radicals and Puerto Rican movement leaders who really made a profound difference in the women's movement and the movement for reproductive rights and reproductive justice. So let me, um, let me explain it a little bit. So our neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias, she was living in San Juan, uh, at the time that the Young Lords, which is this radical militant Puerto Rican group, took over a part of a neighborhood hospital in the South Bronx that they claimed was badly serving its Black and Puerto Rican patients in particular. And they were facing cuts. Public, it's a public hospital. They were facing a, a new round of cuts, and they were afraid that that the services would become even more terrible than they already were. So they took over a portion of the hospital, and they demanded that hospital decision-making happen with community input. What the, the phrase in the time was community control. And what they were demanding was uh, a menu of healthcare rights that went beyond what we usually think of as reproductive rights. But that demand for healthcare rights, I think wound up being very important for people who were in the reproductive rights movement. Um, and inside the Young Lords, initially they were very anti-abortion because they thought that that was a kind of a form of uh, racial genocide or national genocide. But the women and the young lords sort of brought the group around and they came to support abortion rights if abortions themselves were going to be under community control. So Helen, when she leaves San Juan, she comes to New York, she winds up being the head of pediatrics at this hospital that has just been taken over and where they're having this very, very active conversation about health rights, community control, responsiveness to the community and where does abortion and where do reproductive rights fit into that whole story. And out of that kind of combustible mix of things, um, and then what happens after Roe versus Wade, and there's a revelation about these two little girls, these two black girls who have been sterilized in Alabama, she co-founds a group called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse. And that group, CESA, winds up being in the vanguard of fighting against sterilization abuse, first in New York and then nationally. And by the end of the 1970s, CESA joins with and to some degree folds into a larger group called CARASA, the Committee for Abortion Rights and Against Sterilization Abuse. And so they're fighting for both the right to not have kids when you don't want to have kids or it's not appropriate for you and the right to have kids and to not be sterilized against your will. And as they're in the process of doing that fight, they come to understand that what people really need is what they call reproductive freedom. And that's what today we would call reproductive justice, meaning people need access to 
safe legal abortion and they need access to contraception and they need to be free from sterilization abuse and they need all the things that are gonna allow them to raise kids in a healthy and dignified environment. So that means playgrounds and it means childcare and it means a safe neighborhood and it means being free from police violence and harassment. And it, needs a, it means a min minimum of economic security for yourself and your children. And it means decent nutrition. And suddenly their eyes open up to the fact that the genuine reproductive freedom as they call it is much, much bigger than abortion rights. And that's the agenda that I think is really transformative at the end of the 70s into the 80s. And then it's reborn again in the 90s and the early uh, 2000s by black women who call for reproductive justice very much along the same lines. And that's, that's really where the progressive end of the repro movement is today. It's in that demand for reproductive justice. Abortion, yes, of course, and all these other things as well. Wow, that's terrific. And so just a very last question. I mean, you you explore all these these issues so beautifully in this book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. We are in a very, very dangerous time for women and women's reproductive freedom and reproductive justice. Um, one of the most important lessons that you take from this book that we need now as we re-engage with this fight on a larger level in society. I'm so glad you asked that. Even though, even though we're facing some really tough times these days, I think that, that this book helps me to remember, and I hope it, it helps others to remember, that it is possible to change law and policy very dramatically in a short space of time. And it's possible to do that with a relatively small group of people. You know, the people I, I studied in this story, they're, there's a, a group of them. They're not doing it alone. They're doing it in collaboration and coalition, but it's not everybody in America, right? It's people who really care and who really are willing to, to leave it all on the field and fight like hell um, for reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And what they're able to do is remarkable, right? Um, the people in the National Organization for Women don't even get going until 1966. And then by 1970, they've already enacted a revolution in the New York state abortion laws. They never thought that would happen. They thought they were gonna have to change the state constitution in order to change the abortion laws, or even they thought they might have to change the federal constitution in order to change the abortion laws. And they're able to do it in less than a decade. You know, similarly with the folks who are fighting sterilization abuse, once they actually get mobilized and organized, they win their first victory in the New York City public hospital system within about six months. And it's only a couple of years later, it's three years later when they win at the national level in the Federal Department of Health education and welfare. That's amazing and it is possible, it's possible today. And, and I think we see it, we see it in places like Kansas um, where they fought off an effort to, to bar abortion rights and to say that abortion rights were never going to be within the terms of the state constitution. We see, see it in places like my own state of Vermont where we had over 70% of people favoring a new constitutional amendment in favor of reproductive liberty. And I think we have to understand that even in some of the most inhospitable places, it is possible to win. And it's possible to win on things that are very ambitious, 
So we should not be foreshortening our horizons. We certainly shouldn't be sitting on our hands or, or staying home, crying our tears. We should be out there fighting and we should we should believe that we can win because we really can. Mm. Don't mourn, organize. That's right. Felicia Cornblow, this is just an incredible read and such an important story. A woman's life is a human life. Thank you so much for talking with us here. Thank you. Felicia Cornblow. You can hear an excerpt from A Woman's Life is a Human Life by going to writersvoice.net. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. During my conversation with Felicia Cornblue, she spoke about the pivotal case for reproductive justice in the U.S., Ralph v. Weinberger, which resulted in a prohibition against the use of federal funds for involuntary sterilization. Last September, we spoke with Dolan Perkins Valdez, whose novel Take My Hand was based on that case. Let's hear an excerpt from that interview now. The Mississippi appendectomy. That's what the great civil rights leader Fannie Lou Hamer called the practice of involuntary sterilization forced on poor, mostly black and brown, women for decades in the 20th century. It was a practice Hamer herself was a victim of. Dolan Perkins' Valdez's novel, Take My Hand, takes this history up in the story of a young nurse who fights for justice for two young girls who have been sterilized in Mississippi in 1971. Out from Penguin Random House in April of this year, the book has garnered widespread praise. Ms. Magazine called it, quote, a searing and ultimately hopeful novel about injustice and the importance of learning from history. In addition to Take My Hand, Dolan Perkins Valdez is the New York Times bestselling author of two previous novels, Wench and Balm. Dolan Perkins Valdez, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you for inviting me. This novel is loosely inspired by the real-life case of Ralph versus Weinberger. Tell us about that case and what interested you in it. Well, that case um, was filed in 1973 in federal court in Washington, D.C. Um, it was a class action case on behalf of, you know, impoverished women all over the country who had been taken advantage of in federally funded family planning clinics. The Ralph family were the lead plaintiffs. And it was filed against the federal government and specifically Weinberger, who was the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. It was really interesting to me because it was something that had been sort of hiding in plain sight, if you will, for many years in our collective memory. It was a big deal at the time. It was in every major newspaper, every major magazine. 
but yet so many of us hadn't learned about it and hadn't and didn't really know the details of the case. So I was just fascinated by this, you know, gross injustice. And I knew that I needed to tell this story. And tell it you do so well. Before we get to the story, I just want to point out to our listeners that nearly 150,000 low-income women from all over the nation were sterilized. Perkins Valdez's novel features as characters a nurse named Civil and the lawyer Lou Feldman, who represents the two young girls who were sterilized, based on the historical Ralph sisters. Let's get past the part of my interview with the author discussing her novel to return to the issue of reproductive justice as it exists today. And now another major theme of this wonderful novel, Dolan Perkins Valdez, this novel, Take My Hand, is reproductive freedom. You know, Civil at one point tells Lou Feldman that restricting abortion access is the flip side of the coin of involuntary sterilization. And this is now, of course, so so salient today. What are your thoughts on that as abortion rights are now being fought all over the country as a right as the result of striking down Roe versus Wade. Talk about this double-edged, you know, this this coin with two faces. Well, I will tell you, I began working on this book seven years ago, and I often tell people that that was three Supreme Court justice ago. Never in a million years did I think the book would come out two years before. Roe v. Wade was overturned. At no point did I have a conversation with my publisher about that timing. And and actually, in my mind, I thought the paperback, which comes out next year, would be coming out in the 50th year of Roe v. Wade. I never imagined that there would be no 50th year. Now, of course, reproductive justice advocates have been warning us of this day for a long time. But I think I was, like many Americans, sort of in denial of the... Um, eminence of, of, a, of a ruling like this. But I will say that um, in the book, I would say after I was sort of a couple of drafts into the book, it was clear to me that my main character, Sybil, had terminated a pregnancy. Um, I woke up one morning and it just I just knew that that was part of why she's so determined to work in the clinic. It's part of why her relationship with her ex-boyfriend, Ty, is so strained. It's part of why what happens to those girls is so devastating to her for the rest of her career. So I sort of waded into those waters. I also knew that it would come up in the conversations because the Roe v. Wade ruling was just announced in January of that year. So I knew that it would come up in the conversations with the lawyer about the case. I knew that it would be something that was on the minds of anybody who worked in a rep reproductive care facility, even though that clinic did not offer any kind of abortion services. It was still working in the reproductive health care field. So I knew it was a sort of a topic that I could not ignore in the book. Um, now that we find ourselves at this moment, um, and you know, lots of people are asking me this question, lots of book clubs are reading the book and talking about it in the context of this recent ruling. My hope for the book is that it will really help to just add to the conversation about this ruling and about women's reproductive justice um, by reminding us who is most disproportionately affected, which would be poor women, which would be women of color, 
women without resources, and also to remind us that reproductive rights is about more than just terminating a pregnancy. It's also about um, access to contraceptives. It's also about women's choices about whether or not they even want to have children. You know, if a woman decides not to have children, she should not be stigmatized. It's also about raising children, the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. And, you know, when these children are born, and we know that um, certain organizations have predicted that the number of children living below the, the poverty line is going to increase in states where abortion is not legal. So what about those children? How do we take care of them as a society? So reproductive rights encompasses all of that. And I think it's something that involves all of us. And in the book, Ty is very much affected by Civil and his decision to terminate their pregnancy. And so I also want him as a reminder and it's, a, and it's, you know, uh, something that he carries with him too. So I wanted as a reminder that this is an issue that also affects men. So that's my hope for this book, that it just expands the conversation and allows us to keep talking about it. Now, we have to note that the sterilizations at the hand of the U.S. government aren't over. Right, right. And I make note of this in the author's note, you know, recently, the state of California was sterilizing women without their consent in state prisons. And also there are ongoing legal cases on behalf of women who are who immigrant women who are detained in detention facilities at the border. They are alleging, I've met some of the lawyers who are representing those women. They are alleging that they have been subjected to medically unnecessary procedures, including sterilization, but also including um, the removal of benign this um, and other kinds of just medically unnecessary procedures related to their to our reproductive organs. And of course, um, we know that the state of North Carolina and also the state of Virginia have issued apologies to states for sterilizations that happened in the past. I'm hopeful that as a result of this book, and some of the other, um, and, you know, there was a New York Times uh, magazine cover story about the Ralph sisters. I'm hopeful that the Alabama state legislature will also do the right thing and issue a formal and public apology to all of the victims of the state. Dolan Perkins Valdez talking with me in 2022 about her novel, Take My Hand. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the full interview. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.